Our scripture text for this morning is John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. This section of John 16 marks the conclusion of this discourse that Jesus has been giving to his disciples on the night of his betrayal. And then John 17, of course, transitions to Jesus' high priestly prayer. And so today we're at the end of, of this discourse, beginning in John chapter 16, verse 25. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he records for us the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will not ask, excuse me, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, we will uh, be doing so under three main points. First of all, believers have open access to the Father. Believers have open access to the Father. Secondly, true faith is sometimes weak. True faith is sometimes weak. And thirdly, take courage. Take courage. So first of all, believers have open access to the Father. Jesus says here in verse 25 that he has spoken these things to his disciples in, in figurative language or, or figurative speech. The word has been translated also as, as proverb or could also be translated perhaps as veiled saying. And what he is getting at is the fact that in this farewell discourse stretching back to the beginning of chapter 14, he has been speaking to them at least in part using these figures of speech, speaking to them in ways that are not quite clear to them. After all, what did they understand of mansions in heaven and Christ's going there to prepare a place for them? What did they understand of the unspeakable truth that Christ is in the Father and the Father is in Him? What did they know, again, of the unspeakable truth that the Spirit proceeds from the Father? Could they fathom what Jesus was talking about when He said that they would have grief like a woman in childbirth, but then that their grief would turn to joy? Did they really understand the figure of the vine and the branches and 
the father is the vine dresser. Did they get it? Well, maybe in part yes, but maybe in part no. These were sayings that were too deep for them to grasp at the time. But Jesus points them forward to a time at which he would tell them plainly of the Father and would no longer use this figurative speech or these veiled sayings. And I tend to think that this is exactly what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus had 40 days that he was with his disciples between his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the Father. And didn't Jesus give greater clarity to the disciples during that time period? Luke tells us in Luke 24 of how Jesus spoke to, to Cleopas and that other unnamed disciple as they were on the road to Emmaus and how beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them the things in the scriptures concerning himself. And you remember what they said after Jesus vanished from their sight. They said, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And Jesus did the same thing with the 11 disciples, as we find in Luke 24, 45. We find that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And even though Luke, there in Luke 24, emphasizes the fact that Jesus was explaining to them the things concerning himself from the scriptures, there's no reason to suppose that he did not also speak to them plainly in regard to the Father. Indeed, in telling them about himself, how could he not have been telling them about the Father with whom he is one. After all, this was the great, one of the great purposes for which Christ came into the world, to reveal the Father to his people. Just think back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's what Jesus came to do, was to explain the Father, in part. And Jesus proceeded to tell them that in that day, that day when he was speaking to them plainly in regard to the Father, that they would no longer pray to the Father in, that, that, they would, that they would pray to the Father in the name of Christ, that they would make their requests directly to the Father in Jesus' name. Now this, of course, does not in any way deny that Jesus intercedes for his people as, as their high priest, as their advocate, as their mediator. Jesus does indeed do all of those things for his people, but what he is getting at here, in speaking as he does, is to assure his people that their very own prayers offered to the Father in Jesus' name would be heard and would be accepted by the Father. And why would the Father hear and accept these prayers? It's because of what Jesus says in verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. In short, believers have open access to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in, in saying this, Jesus assures his people of God the Father's love and therefore of the Father's willingness to hear those prayers that are offered in Jesus' name. Now, he's not stating that believers initiate the relationship as if they, out of nowhere, begin loving and trusting in Jesus, and then God the Father somehow sees, whoa, this person is loving and trusting Jesus, so therefore I'm going to love him. I'm going to listen to this person's prayer in response to their love. That's not what Jesus is implying here, and we know that that is the case because of what we find in 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where John writes, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for the world. This is John 3.16, that God so loved the world. The love starts with God. God loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The relationship which believers have with God doesn't start with us, it starts with God. Matthew Henry's comment on verse 27 was helpful when he said that it is not as if the love began on their side, but when by his grace he has wrought a love to him, he is well pleased with the work of his hands. God the Father first loved us and chose us and called us to his grace, giving us grace in our hearts such that we were able to see and know and love the truth and believe the truth, to believe in Jesus, that he came forth from the Father as a Savior into the world. And then we trusted in Christ. We loved him. Our faith was working through love. And so understand here then that those who love and trust Jesus have open access to the Father. And so far be it from us to suppose that the persons of the Holy Trinity are somehow divided in the work of redemption, as if Jesus is is merciful to us and the Father is still angry with us. How can the one eternal God be divided against himself? As we stated in our church confession of faith, in the unity of the Godhead there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct and harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. And so we must never suppose that that Jesus loves us while the Father is somehow nursing a grudge against us because of our sins. Such a thought is utterly unworthy of God the Father. The Father himself loves those who are in Christ. The curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died, as we find in Matthew 27, 51. And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us, as we read together this morning, Hebrews 10, Therefore, brethren, having, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have unhindered access to God the Father, now through Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered and died to secure that access. He died to take away the sins that separated us from God. He died to take away the enmity. And though we really were God's enemies, and though we really were objects of his wrath because of our sins, because of our hatred of God, because of our hatred of our neighbors, because of our immorality and our lust and our greed and disobedience to our parents and dishonesty and all the rest... Nevertheless, for those who trust in Jesus Christ, that wrath is gone. It really is done away with as far as the east is from the west, as we find in Psalm 103, verse 12. According to Micah 7, 19, the sins of God's people are cast into the depths of the sea. The promise of the new covenant is that of Jeremiah 31, 34, where the Lord says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This forgiveness is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And this true faith in Christ, true trust in him, 
is always accompanied by a love for him. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.22, that if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Now those who are not accursed are those who love Jesus. Those who love Jesus are those who trust him. And this trust and love is the gift of God, worked within the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit. And God the Father then is well pleased with the work of his own hands. God the Father loves us, as demonstrated by Christ's death for us, and God the Father listens to us and receives us on account of Christ's work for us. And so if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, then please be encouraged by this glorious and wonderful truth. You have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. God the Father loves you. He has adopted you into his family. So Paul says, Galatians 3.26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. He says again, Galatians 4, 6, and 7, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. God is a good Father, and He loves you. And we have access into the holy place through the blood of Christ. As we're working through the, the book of Leviticus on Sunday nights, we're seeing how there was a barrier in the, in the tabernacle. The priests could only go in so far and only at certain times. They could not go in at any time they wanted to. But now in Christ, that barrier is gone. We can come to the Father in confidence. We can come to Him in prayer, knowing that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, then how much more is God a good Father who gives what is truly good to those who ask Him? We can come to the Father in the way described, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of Him. And so, believer, enjoy this communion which you have with God. And turn away from evil, lest you grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't regard wickedness in your heart, or the Lord will not hear, as we find in Psalm 66, 18. Don't turn aside into sin, and by so doing, bring the rod of the Lord's discipline upon you. Now, surely when that discipline comes, it is for our goods that we may be partakers of the Lord's holiness. But isn't it even better, much better, if we put to death the sin before the rod comes, rather than have to undergo the discipline after the root has gone down and the seed has sprouted, bearing poisonous fruit, thus requiring the discipline. Let's turn away from the sin before the discipline comes. And if you're here this morning and you are not yet a believer in Christ, I want you to consider carefully the words of Jesus there in verse 27. He says, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Now, it is certainly true, and praise God it is, that the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. So we find in Psalm 145, verse 9. It's certainly true that God so loved the world and you as a person of the world are included in that love. But please understand that these general statements of God's love toward mankind and the world, such as we find in Psalm 145 and John 3.16, is quite different 
from the love of the Father that he has for those who trust in Christ, that love that is described for us there in verse 27. It's not the same thing. If you are apart from Jesus Christ, you do not, I'll repeat, do not have this open access to God the Father. For you, the veil of the Holy of Holies, as it were, still remains. You can't go in. You don't have access. In the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.18, you are, in your current state, excluded from the life of God. You cannot have fellowship with God, as it is. But the good news of the gospel is that there is a way. There is a way for you to have fellowship with God. The only way that you can enter into that fellowship with God is by trusting in Jesus Christ. You must believe the words of Jesus in verse 28, what he says concerning himself when he says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. You must believe those words and all that those words imply as found in Scripture. Jesus did come forth from the Father. He is the eternal and only begotten Son of the Father. He came into the world. Why was it he came? He came to save his people from their sins. How did he do that? He did it by going to the cross, dying, horrifying, and agonizing death. He was buried, and then the third day, he was raised from the grave so that all who trust in Christ could be forgiven. And being forgiven by God, they may enter into fellowship with God. And Jesus himself left the world after his resurrection when he ascended 40 days later to the right hand of God the Father. You must trust that Jesus is who he said he is and that he has done what he came to do. You must come to him for the forgiveness of your sins and you must turn away from all of those sins. And that's, that's what Christians mean by the word repent. It means that you don't stay in your sins. You, you turn away from them 180 degrees away and you start walking with the Lord in his ways. And in the preaching of the gospel, God calls out to you. We heard in our, our call to worship this morning, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Lots of people have done that. People in our times, people in the Old Testament, all throughout the history of scripture, people have hardened their hearts against the Lord when the Lord's word was coming out to them and calling them to repent, calling them to believe, calling them to obey. Don't harden your heart. Repent believe today. And if you have more questions about what it means to turn away from your sins, to have fellowship with God, to have the forgiveness of sins, to trust in Jesus, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to to turn away from your sins and to follow after Jesus and to have fellowship with God and eternal life. Now, having seen the access to the Father which believers have through faith in Christ, we come to our our second point, which is true faith is sometimes weak. In verse 29, the disciples claim that Jesus is speaking plainly and that he's no longer using these, these figures of speech, these veiled sayings. Implicitly, they're they're claiming there to understand what Christ has said, at least, at the very least, to have understood some of his more recent utterances. But I think, I think Calvin was helpful when he said that we ought to understand that the apostles were conscious of having made some progress so that they could say with truth that they did not now find the words of Christ to be altogether obscure. But they were deceived in this respect, that they thought they understood more than they did. 
They therefore give themselves up to joy before the time, just as if a person should think himself rich with a single gold piece. And so they, they probably did start to understand what Jesus was talking about a little bit, but probably also they thought they knew more than they, they actually did. And they go on, and they express their faith in Christ in verse 30. They say, now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And these men had been with Jesus for three years. They had seen enough to know that Jesus knew all men, that all the secrets of men's hearts were known to Jesus, such that even if someone wanted to ask a question and hadn't yet asked it, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him about. Indeed, Jesus' knowledge is that of Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before a, tongue is on, before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it completely. But the response of Jesus shows that Jesus is not overawed by this profession of faith which the disciples make. He says to them there in verse 31, Do you now believe? Or it could alternatively be translated as a statement. You now believe. Yes, they did believe. Jesus himself said up in verse 27 that they did believe. But Jesus' question or acknowledgement, depending on how you want to take verse 31, is not quite a glowing affirmation, but rather almost an implicit chastisement of their weakness. And the fact that they are weak is seen in what follows there in verse 32, where Jesus says to them, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come. For you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone. And so these disciples were, were real believers, but they were weak believers. They would soon abandon Jesus as the events of that night would go on to show. And you see much the same kind of thing going on in Jesus' interaction uh, with Peter that very night as described in Luke 22 31 to 34, Jesus said to, to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. So you see this dynamic going on there, that Jesus acknowledged that Peter had faith. He said he had prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. But yet he goes on to say Peter was going to deny him three times that night before the rooster crowed. And that acknowledgement on the part of Jesus of both Peter's faith and also Peter's coming failure is here in John, uh, John 16, applied to all of the disciples. Now, they didn't all sin quite as grievously as Peter did in blatantly denying the Lord three times, but nevertheless, they did leave him all alone, save for the presence of the Father. Jesus said to them, as recorded in Mark 14, 27, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So the point is that these men were believers. Jesus acknowledged their faith and their love up in verse 27, and yet he speaks here in verse 32 of their imminent scattering. Scattering due to fear. And we should notice in this that a believer's faith 
may be real and true, and at the same time, that believer may be weak and prone to wandering, prone to buckling in a moment of weakness. And there are two errors in this regard that we, that we need to avoid. And in my estimation, I would say that those two errors fall on either an opposite side of the biblical teaching on the subject. One error is committed by some who, when they see someone committing a grievous sin, they may automatically jump to the conclusion that the one committing that sin has no true faith and has never been converted and therefore is in need of salvation because they do not have it. They've never been saved. Some may view the, the grievous sins like the sin here of abandoning Jesus on the night of his arrest and trial or like the sin of Peter blatantly denying that he knew Jesus or like the sin of David committing adultery and having Uriah killed. Sins like these of being of such a nature that a true believer could not possibly ever commit them. Now given the, the heinous, wicked and public nature of these sins, I can understand why someone would be tempted to reach that conclusion. The problem, though, is that the scriptures would beg to differ. In the case of Peter and the rest of the disciples, it's abundantly clear that they did have true faith. Same holds true for David. If you look back in the book of Psalms, and you note that in the Psalms there's some, some inscriptions above verse 1 in our English versions that tell when and on what occasion some of those Psalms were written. And if you look at some of those inscriptions, you'll find that a number of them were written prior to David's sin with Bathsheba and his having Uriah killed. Are we to conclude that those psalms were, were written when David was, as of yet, an unbeliever? I don't think so. Psalm 51, which describes David's repentance, describes it in terms of a believer who is returning to his God, not in terms of an unbeliever who is making his first and initial turn towards God. And so, just for instance, Psalm 51, 11 and 12, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. If you read the New Testament epistles, it's abundantly clear that New Testament believers were committing all kinds of sins. For example, the Corinthian Christians were apparently struggling with the sin of visiting prostitutes, or at least they were susceptible to temptation in that regard. Now, in, in saying all this, let me be abundantly clear. I'm not justifying any of these things. All of those sins are wicked, abominably wicked. All of them are inconsistent with a life that has been renewed by the Lord. I'm not holding up these as examples in the sense of encouraging or excusing any who walk in their paths. But what I am doing is to show on the basis of the scriptures that true believers, to their shame and to the shame of the church, have committed horrible and grave sins. True faith can be weak. True believers have committed acts of horrible wickedness. True disciples were weak and deserted Christ on the night of his betrayal. But when believers do sin, they must repent, and they do, in fact, repent. The disciples did. Peter, of course, is the most conspicuous example of this. He went out and wept bitterly after he had denied Christ. And Christ asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter responded very clearly in the affirmative all three times. And so it is that all believers who sin must repent and must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit of holy and godly living 
walking in obedience to all that Christ has taught us. It's not the mere profession of faith in Christ that proves that faith is real. But all who possess faith will be known by their deeds. And if they sin, their faith will be shown as genuine by their repentance. The opposite error is what we could call the the antinomian error, which is to say it is the error that simply accepts a person as a believer based on their profession of faith, even if their life is completely at odds with that profession of faith, even if it is a life that completely lacks any signs of repentance or the fruits of repentance. An antinomian is someone who completely disregards the law of God and thinks that it has no bearing at all on the Christian life in terms of informing our conduct, how we should live. This error disregards the words of Jesus in Matthew seven sixteen when he said, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? This is the error that places all of the weight on the profession of faith, regardless of the, acceptance, of the, the appearance of the life that accompanies that profession of faith. It is the error that says, well, he says he believes in Jesus, or at the very least, he used to say he believes in Jesus. Who am I to judge? Well, in fact, we are to judge. Paul says so. He judged those inside the church, 1 Corinthians 5. These two errors are opposite of one another. The one assumes that true believers will not commit grievous sins, while the other allows that a man can be a true believer without repentance from sin, and without the fruits of holiness anywhere in his life. The scriptures show us something else, that both true believers may commit horrible sins, and that if they would be counted as believers in Christ, they must repent of those sins and return to the Lord. This is what happened with David. This is what happened with Peter and the rest of the eleven They were true believers, they sinned terribly, and they repented. They came back. So we need to learn from all of this that true believers can be weak, and not just weak in the the inward sense of someone who feels that their faith is small and like hanging by a thread. True believers can also be weak in the sense that in a moment of trial, they fail the test. They deny Christ in weakness. They give in to a sin. And you and I had better not think that we are above such weakness. On a good Sunday morning when things are going decently well and we're here in church, we might think, yeah, I would, never, I would never do something like that. Don't put it past yourself. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Likewise, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And so this demands humility in regard to ourselves. When you or I think that we are immune to a certain kind of sin, we stand in great danger of it. We need to recognize that we all stand daily in need of much grace from the Lord to sustain us. It's not without cause that the Lord taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. True believers can be weak, and I would venture to say that all of us have our weaknesses. And so let's be watchful and let's seek to grow, to grow up to maturity as believers, to grow up, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, in, or Ephesians 4 rather, to, to Christ in our head in all things. And this also calls for humility as we evaluate the conduct of others. When we see terrible sins committed by those who profess Christ, we have to be careful and thoughtful before we either affirm them as a fellow believer or write them off 
as a non-believer. In the immediate aftermath of a heinous sin, it can be really hard to tell. I have to give some time for the dust to settle and see if there's repentance. Depending on the circumstances, we might need to be a part of the process in calling someone to repentance. Certainly, if we're members of the same local church, we have covenanted together to do that very thing. And depending on the circumstances, we might have to be involved in the steps of formal church discipline. We learn here that believers, true believers, can be very weak, and we need to respond to it in the spirit outlined in Galatians 6.1, where Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual ought to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. And of course, if there's a refusal that on the part of the, the one in error and they refuse to be restored, then that's where the steps of formal church discipline ought to come into play. We need one another to walk together in brotherly love and to help one another to stay strong, to help one another when we are weak. This is where the local church comes into play. We need one another. Now, despite that somewhat discouraging and sobering truth about the possibility of true believers being very weak here in this world, our Lord would not have us remain in weakness and fear. Instead, he comforts and strengthens the disciples and us by what he says there at the end of the chapter, verse 33. He says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And this is our third point for this morning. Take courage. And we've seen in these, these recent chapters here how Jesus was very open with the disciples about the challenges that they would face after he departed from them. They would face hostility, persecution, and so on. He's told them how in this world they would have tribulation. But remember also some of what he's told them throughout these chapters. He's told them they were not to let their hearts be troubled. John 14.1 He told them that he was going away to prepare a place for them. John 14.3 He had told them that the Father will answer the prayers that are made in the name of Jesus. Chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. He told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit and what the work of the Holy Spirit would be, how the Spirit would teach them all things and would bring to their remembrance all the things that Jesus had taught them. Chapter 14, verse 26. He had told them how it was to their advantage that he was going away so that the Spirit would come and would convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Chapter 16, verses 7 through 10. He had told them that the Spirit would guide them into all truth by taking from the things that belong to the Father and the Son and revealing them to the disciples. Chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. He had told them how they were to abide in Him as a branch abides in the vine, and it, that if they keep His commandments, they would abide in His love. He had told them that this was the way to bear fruit, by abiding in Him, and that the Father would be glorified by the bearing of much fruit as they proved themselves to be his disciples. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Jesus had told them these things, he says here in verse 33, so that in him they might have peace. The world into which they would be sent would be one in which suffering and tribulation awaited them. Jesus was upfront and 
clear and earnest with them about that. But Jesus had told them these things so that in him they would have peace. What a blessing this is that in a world full of trouble, peace can be found. It's found in Christ. And so Jesus bids his disciples to take courage. Despite all of the tribulation and troubles they were going to face, he says to them to be strong. And this call to courage is based upon the great fact contained in those final words of verse 33. I have overcome the world. Now Jesus speaks, as he does here, in anticipation of the victory which he was to accomplish in the very near future by his death and resurrection. Jesus overcame the world by defeating the ruler of this world, Satan. Paul would say it this way, describing Christ's work on the cross, accomplishing the victory, Colossians 2.15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Christ suffered opposition of the world, but he overcame it in victory. His earthly opponents who condemned him to death and put him to death on the cross did so not realizing that they were merely wicked agents who were doing what God had foreordained in the first place so that their defeat would be accomplished. If the ruler of this world stands condemned by means of the cross of Christ, then all who follow after the ruler of this world have their judgment and condemnation assured as well. Now Christ overcame the temptations of the world by refusing them. He overcame the sufferings of the world by persevering through them. He overcame the wicked people of the world either by converting them to faith in him or by silencing them. And because Christ has overcome the world before us, all those who are Christ's overcome the world as well. Indeed, we find in 1 John 5, 4, that whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Matthew Henry said it well when he said, Christ's victory is a Christian's triumph. Never was there such a conqueror of the world as Christ was, and we ought to be encouraged by it, because Christ has overcome the world before us, so that we may look upon it as a conquered enemy. Believers have nothing to do but pursue their victory and divide the spoil. And this we do by faith. And so Christian friends, allow these words of Jesus here at the end of, of John 16 to be a great reminder to you, a reminder of the peace which we have through Christ. We all know that this world is a tough place to live. My grandfather used to say, People have more trouble than anybody. Isn't it true? And it is true. I was recently speaking to, to someone about just the craziness of the world, the violence, the, uh, the polarization among people, the uncertainties of life, freak accidents. In this world, Christ's people have tribulation. Being a Christian doesn't get rid of that for us. Right? There's all kinds of trouble. But nevertheless, our Lord bids us to take courage. It's not because of us, but because of Him. He has overcome the world. And we will overcome it as well, being united to Christ, our captain, and the perfecter of our faith. And therefore the apostle says in Romans 8, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or peril? But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer 
through him who loved us. And so, brothers and sisters, take heart. Jesus has come and has overcome the world. And it will not be long, not long, until our earthly warfare and trials are ended, until our faith is sight, and until we enter into our eternal rest in Christ. And so let's fix our eyes on Christ. Let's take courage. Let's keep going. Please pray with me. Father, we are so thankful for these words of Jesus meant to comfort us and strengthen us so that in him we may have peace. Lord, we pray that in the midst of a very troublesome world, our hearts would be strengthened. Not because of us, because we know that we are weak, but because of Jesus and the victory which he has already accomplished. We praise you, Father, that he has overcome the world. We thank you that we can be more than conquerors through him. We ask your grace to be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.